right, hello everyone. Welcome to the Osim Bunker podcast. We have um, uh, Air Marshal uh, Ed Springer here with us today um, to talk about, well, a lot of stuff. Um, mostly mostly uh, Ukraine, because obviously we've been focusing on that for the past, uh, as we were joking, bit too long. Um, but thank you for coming onto the podcast and uh, talking with us. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So I think we'll just launch into sort of, you know, uh, your background. Sort of describe, I guess, in, in, in a paragraph what, what your career experience has been. I suppose it's best to work backwards, isn't it? Um, uh, for the last three years until um, about, a year, about a year ago, um, I was the Director General Joint Force Development. So we were the people that looked at the future of warfare. And a part of, as part of that, one of the responsibilities was you know, Director General of the Defence Academies. So all the, all the thinking bits of the British military, which depending on your prejudice, sounds like either a really very big or a very small uh, responsibility. Uh, before that, I did two years as the, the title of the job was uh, Assistant Chief of Defence Staff for Operations. It's actually essentially the operations director, military operations director in the MOD, which, as you imagine, is fascinating. Um, attend uh, uh, pretty much every military-related uh, COBRA to uh, advise government and then you know, run the governance for every operation that, um, that we had going from the nuclear deterrent to you know, helping with flood relief in the UK. Uh, before that, uh, Assistant Chief of the Air Staff in the, uh, uh, in the Air Force, which is another policy job for, for the Royal Air Force and on, on the Air Force Board. And then before that, a range of one-star jobs, which I won't go into, but Commandant Air Warfare Centre was a very interesting job. And that included getting eight hours warning to go out and be the uh, senior RAF officer running the operation over Libya in, in 2011. And go all the way back before that, I... Uh, started my career flying the Jaguar, so yeah, I'm uh, came, came up through through that route into the, into the Royal Air Force. And that 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 I, I I know that that's really interesting to sort of hear that progression of of what has been a very interesting aircraft for the RAF up until 2005, if I'm not incorrect. Yeah, I think it's I think it's technically uh, I think it's 2007. I think it went went out of service. Um, yeah, the fascinating thing was how to eke out from a cheapest ship's aeroplane some capabilities that, 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 that kept it useful towards the end in the era, the era of no-fly zones. So in a part of one of my jobs, um, I did operational test and evaluation at Boscombe Down as a, as a squadron leader. And we did all the work on, can you do single-seat laser designation? Well, it seems obvious now, and pretty much everyone's moving to single-seat operation. But at the time, it was widely considered that if you had such capabilities you needed a two-seat aircraft the guy in the front flew it and looked out the window and the guy in the back was heads down staring at a tv screen um and we we within a year we put that capacity into a jaguar which didn't, hadn't had never had anything like it before and that actually was a formative experience because it just shows you when you put your mind to it you can move really quickly and you don't have to always be thinking in terms of hundreds of millions of defense dollars and 10-year programs and huge government structures using in-house capacities the skills of all the people down at Boscombe Down you know the big the big test um, and evaluation center in the UK uh, we took a trials fit and turned it into a production standard and put it through the fleet in about a year so we went from a very much analog 60s 70s airplane to one with a um, 1553 data bus through it GPS and uh, terrain 
elevation database and a helmet mounted site. And it just shows what you can do with old stuff and, and, and repurpose it. And I think that sort of animated my approach to military and procurement and force development ever since. And and I know that, that that's definitely an interesting uh, sort of a, a progression for the platform. I, I know um, it, it didn't originally come with that 1553 bus for data uh, transfer, did it? No, no, that's my point. It was a totally analog aircraft. I mean, it's actually originally designed as a... As, as a as a trainer, I believe back in the uh, back in the back in the sixties, you know, sort of almost if you like, sort of super T thirty eight, with which it shares some pretty terrible handling characteristics. Uh, so no, it was totally analog, you know, totally analog aeroplane built to drop dumb bombs. You know, the most you know, the clever thing there was a sort of oil oil three gyro uh, heated oil inertial platform, which was considered pretty cutting edge for its day. That tried to guess where you were, uh, and if you were anywhere within five miles, you were doing pretty well. And just goes to show, you know, you swap that out and you put a 1553 data bus in and suddenly you can bolt all sorts of stuff in, you know, with shrinking electronics. And, and then, as I say, the next thing you know, you've got a, yeah, an aircraft that's GPS slave, much better inertial system, Kármán filters, I won't get overly technical, but you can suddenly bolt the helmet mounted site. And if you see something out the window at medium level, you can slave a laser designated pod to it because it's got three D awareness because you have that terrain elevation database in there. So all sorts of and then we could just play with it because we could write the software in house. So one of those programs where the software engineer would write something in the morning, I'd fly it in the afternoon, they'd think about it overnight, tweak it, and I'd fly it again in the morning. So as such, the the speed with which you could develop capabilities was um pretty jaw-dropping for the time that's actually incredibly interesting because i of course look at the u.s version of that which was you know converting the f-14 tomcat to drop um precision guided munitions and, and of course that was you know a similar situation it didn't come with that those you know same data buses it didn't come it, it was an analog bird when it first flew um and and the difference in the u.s approach was just sticking a pod on it um with with everything needed you know the pod itself had the gps the pod itself you know was this self-contained system for dropping precision guided munitions and that that is slightly interesting to see sort of that difference in approach well you can get really technical here that i think the what, what happened was the manufacturer british aerospace thought though there, there was definitely going to be no money in jaguar it should have gone out of service years ago when and to to be replaced by a thing that was previously called the eurofighter and do you remember before it was called Eurofighter 2000? It was definitely coming in in the 90s. And then that got delayed. The experience of the Gulf War and what we were doing in Bosnia and the no-fly zones meant this, if you could do this cheap enough, then this upgrade would work. And the RAF had the design authority, therefore they didn't have to go back to the manufacturer. It wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, with the Tomcat, the US Navy probably had to go back to the manufacturer, at which point you're into you know, the normal processes of writing specs and contracting for it. And in, you know, in that case, and it was the same as some other RAF aircraft being, being suited, uh, similarly upgraded at the time, those processes seemed much slower in comparison. Um, uh, the sadness is I don't think that we necessarily learned all the lessons we could, and I don't think we gripped the nettle and decided to take a bit of risk and adopt these fast um adaptation processes and and spread them across the board you can see where the nervousness would come from um but as ukraine is showing us at the moment you've got to keep adapting and he who adapts quickest wins i mean that is darwinism uh, and having institutions that 
take years and years and years just to do quite simple upgrades on most of our aircraft you know is 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 not a war winning capacity we didn't think about it like that then but i think ukraine is showing us now you know we we need to have the ability to you know upgrade and adapt and repurpose and, and i think the history of warfare always brings that out doesn't it Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you you move the conversation to you. You said the word Ukraine first, so I can move to it now because <laughs> I'm I'm the one who always moves the conversation over. But I know the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine is dealing with with an air force that is, you know, primarily made up of those. Aircraft with technology from the 1980s and 1990s, you know, they're they're thing uh, semi active radar homing missiles, as we saw um, uh, with that interview with the Ukrainian um, pilot. What does Ukraine need from NATO? What does Ukraine need from the West to put together a, a comprehensive force that's able not necessarily to test Russia one-on-one, -on -one, but improve their capabilities of what they're doing now? What, what sort of what capabilities do they need? Oh, I mean that's such a broad question, isn't it? So, and I'll I'll, I'll answer it broadly, and then and then and then narrow down. And I've argued, and you know, and in print, and I'm sure elements of this are happening. And and uh, we don't need to know exactly what they are. We certainly shouldn't be talking about it if we did know. But I think the the, the fundamental idea is that there are great capacities in the West for doing what I've just spoke about before. You know, we uh, most of the Western nations have got some form of huge Defence Laboratory somewhere in the UK, you've got the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, DSTL, you know, down at Portland Down, and, 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 and we've got things like the Air Warfare Centre that are, uh, that are used to looking at operational problems and coming up with innovative solutions. So I think offering that capacity, that force development capacity, to really help Ukraine and keep on adapting quickly is, will be a, a real game changer because it's pretty clear that the whole Russian military culture is pretty corrupt. It's pretty sclerotic. Let's face it; it's it's pretty intellectually bankrupt. Of course, they're learning. You know, Darwin tells you that the people who survive on the battlefield are those who've learned not to die. But you look at they haven't really launched any version that we would understand of joint or manoeuvre warfare. Um, they're just grinding things out using raw, brutal violence. So they don't seem to have the capacity to to learn and adapt pretty quickly. So giving the Ukrainians who have proved their resourcefulness, have they not across society, um, you know, the, the, the tools to do the job in that area, I, I think is an area that you can add a real, um, you know, a real USP. Well, what would you do with it? Well, at the moment, you know, it strikes me in, there are, you know, a couple of theatres worth looking at and splitting out. You've got the South and then you've got the East and the Donbass. Everyone's concentrated on the Donbass, largely because that's where the Russian narrative has been. Um, but it's pretty clear Russian losses have, have, have been staggering, certainly staggering by Western standards. And as I say, uh, in, in a mode of warfare that does not look too, too impressive, they can do it because they have the um, overwhelming dominance in, in, in firepower. But if you are to make Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian fires a lot smarter and give them the range, which systems such as HIMARS are now doing, but what HIMARS needs is the ability to keep one step ahead of any Russian counter countermeasures to be it. So it's the ISR, it's the command and control, it's the ability to know where the Russians are going to put their next supply dumps, their command and control centers, you know, all the stuff that 
you know, the Ukrainians have shown great you know operational wisdom in 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 targeting in the semi deep and those are the things that i would argue ukraine has to become even better at such that the the loss and casualty ratio starts to be tipped ever more against russia and you make donbass just a cauldron for the russian forces um i don't think we should overly worry about yards traded given the months it's taken the russians to gather terrain that's only about the size of Greater London and, as I say, taken staggering losses in it. Which we, what we should be looking at is which side is recuperating quickest, which side is learning faster, which side is looking like it's, it's starting to fight better and cleverer, and, as I say, stacking the loss ratio in, in, in its favour. Then, yeah, uh, yeah at, at that point, Russia's going to find it difficult to reinforce the Donbass and keep hold of the South. And you could argue the South is much more strategically vital, given it's got the ports. You've got the Dnieper River uh, going out there through through uh, the um, Kherson Oblast, Mykolaiv, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and they've always had Odessa, but you've got the problems, of course, in the Black Sea. But if Russia starts to lose its grip on the south, um, then you know the the strategic grip it has on on Ukraine is really starting to be lost. So those are the areas that I think you know, we should we should be we should be helping uh, 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 helping the Ukrainians master those facets uh, those facets of warfare. I just wanted to touch on what you said about you know those that adapt quickest um, they're also going to have the advantage. Um, and I think one thing we've seen the Russian uh, adapting in, especially in regards in regards to like their air force, is uh, we've seen less and less kind of. Um, precision airstrikes should we say and a lot more of them using um their helicopters and their jets and kind of firing unguided rockets in a uh, kind of what's the best way to describe it like kind of like an upward in an upward arc to increase the range on it and stay out of and stay out of air defense range for example now obviously that's not they're obviously suffering greatly um with accuracy with that but how much does accuracy suffer and compared to I don't know, like the standard rocket artillery they use, like the grads and, and things like that. Um, how much does accuracy suffer compared to, you know, kind of standard rocket artillery when using force in that kind of standard? Well, this, you know, this, this just looks to me like scattergun targeting. And yeah, there's a picture in one of the UK's uh, Sunday papers today that ju it just captions... Uh, captions it as Soviet aircraft indulging, you know, firing rockets at Ukrainian positions, which the casual reader would look at it and go, oh, well, that can't be, can't be very good to be Ukrainian under that. But you look at it and it's a, it's a frog foot firing its rockets, as you just said, on an upward trajectory. Um, yeah. I, I doubt they'll know which county those are going to come down in. <laughs> and so there will be we some unfortunate somewhere. But, I mean, a lot of Russian ordnance is, is, is going to be wasted. Um, I mean, when you consider, I mentioned Libya before, you know, when you consider that we could put precision, quite small munitions into corners of individual buildings and with a fuse that would go off at a certain floor, aimed, you know, taking out, for example, what you mentioned, grad rockets, uh, multi-barrel rocket launchers that Gaddafi's forces were firing point blank at residential areas. I mean, the difference in approach there from the sort of precision that can target the co a corner of a particular room on a particular floor of a building and just take out the weapon there with firing multi-barreled rockets 
that should be aimed at the ground at an upward trajectory is, well, there is no comparison. So, I mean, clearly, you know, the Russians are doing some damage with some of their artillery. Their, their army has always had, you know, relied on you know, the god of war. Um, but I would imagine a huge amount of whatever you believe between 20 and 50,000 rounds a day. Now, some of those are going to hit, of course they are, but a lot of, a lot of uh, that ordinance is essentially being, is, you know, is bleeding the resources of, of, of the Russians. Yeah, those in defence intelligence will have a much better handle, and they won't, be to, they won't necessarily let me know what the answers are, but about just how much the Russians have got left. But it's been yeah. pretty clear that the Ukrainians have been pretty good at targeting those targeting those ammo dumps. So in all of that, I mean, you're not seeing economy of effort here, are you? What you're seeing is you know, profligacy of using the weapons you've got. And we've seen uh, Ukraine, obviously, they've also been using the same tactics with the main in helicopters and uh, jets that they have they've also been kind of firing these rockets on an upward trajectory and obviously you know from what i've read before it is a you know it's a genuine tactic that the soviets came up with and apparently there are you know calculations that go into it obviously like i said the accuracy suffers greatly um but we've also saw um at least one video that i've seen uh that ukraine scavenged the the rocket you know the, the pods from a shot down russian helicopter and bolted them to the back of a helicopter, uh, back of a pickup truck, sorry, and used that as a kind of, um, like a technical, like we'd see in, you know, Syria yeah. or Iraq, and used it in that kind of, um, in that kind of way. And obviously, you know, it's still, you know, multi-barrel rocket launchers, the accuracy is not great anyway, um, but I imagine it's still more accurate than firing from a moving aircraft, again, in an upward trajectory when you're using it in more traditional sense. Yes, I mean the the, yeah, the the technical analogy there. It, it, I would imagine so, and you can you can get your mapping out, and you can you can do the calculations, and it must be more accurate. I, just to come back, you know what you said about the upward firing. Yes, of course they'll they'll have worked out some form of sighting, but I'd love to see it. And I can <laughs> say, you know, we we used to you know, when I first started flying in the tail end of the Cold War, everybody had profiles for toss bombing. You just go off to the range and do it, but. You know, you'd be you'd be you would be lucky to get within hundreds of feet, and that's with you know a very accurate system on a, on a, on a an academic weapons range, which is where you was almost a test of pilot flying skill. And some of the rounds went some of the bottom, you know, went thousands of feet over or under. So we could say the Royal Air Force used to do something like that. In fact, really, the only valid. Um, weapon I could see that was useful and, 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 and it had been part of it was tactical nuclear weapons because you tossed it forward and, uh, and it made your, went into your escape manoeuvre. So the fact that they have sighting calculations for it, well, I'm sure they do, but I, um, you, you, I think you still have to be very lucky. And so the num if you did the calculations on the amount of weapons you'd have to expend to get a, a, a PK, you know, a kill percentage of acceptable whatever it may be, 0.7 or whatever, would be a huge number. Um, and I think it just shows, to move the conversation on a bit, you know, the, the, the desperation, because here we are talking about, you know, can you learn? We're, what, five months into the, the conflict, as we suggested before, and the Russian Air Force just doesn't seem to even want to begin to think about establishing the sort of air campaign that we would consider as um, a pretty essential thing to be doing. And as you suggested, they they are using their aircraft largely 
over territory which they which they control and where they where they clearly where they clearly feel safe beyond that they're using it would appear a range of guided and semi-guided rockets now in what you'd have to say just looks like a terror campaign mm-hmm. so yeah, we've, we've seen them dive into some of those older stocks especially of of those as4s um being yeah. used in in a ground attack role which are are as we've seen in, incredibly inaccurate um even even when they're targeting you know um uh, uh, uh military or industrial structures because at, at this point you know we're we're seeing that borderline terror bombing campaign occur yeah and uh you know we could argue where the border in borderline is but um uh it, it is exactly the same thinking as the vengeance weapons of 1944-45 isn't it um and they must know they will know you know you can't repurpose an as4 i even read one one report today suggesting that even s300 is being used that way so um this is obviously designed to for the purposes of terror and to and to and to cow the population and to suggest their options remain ruthless yeah and, I think... uh, and they can definitely oh, sorry, i was just gonna say like russia have obviously proven that they can hit the targets they want to hit especially in, you know and, and on the topic of like terror bombing um when we look at this strike in i'm gonna pronounce it wrong is it vinitsia or vinitsia um in the last couple of days yeah. which killed uh, over 20 civilians um, and hit was what was a, a theater called the um, the officer's house or the house of officers um, and Russia have claimed that it was a meeting point for um, foreign weapon suppliers which is obviously um, you know nonsense um, but you know they, they, I mean they hit that very accurately um, you know that target which was you know four or five hundred kilometers behind the front lines um, so you know, the, Russia can obviously you know hit what they're aiming at when they want to. It's just unfortunate that the target at the you know more often than not seems to be nothing related to the military whatsoever. Well, and I think you might be able to um, uh, uh, comment on this a bit better than we can. But Russia has seemed to try to claw aspects of its military out of the Cold War. Um, you know, developing. Uh, uh, somewhat accurate submarine ship launch and air launch cruise missiles and and other assets to sort of you know extend their range how how stuck are they in cold war doctrine and and cold war thinking well it's a strategic culture isn't it i mean uh and the cold war doctrine really just just carried on from 1945 and it's it's you know it's the it's the culture of mass um and to control that army, you still need skilled officers, and you know, Stalin's you know, about face that that rescued the Red Army and then Russia was you know, reversing the purge of the competent officers that had gone on through the 1930s, um, and then you know, ruthlessly promoting those that were that was that were successful you know, on the battlefield, and that and that has carried on. But absent that same sense of national purpose and you know, the invasion and the shock of 1941 that clearly did mobilise the, you know, the, 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 the entire Soviet Union and their ability, which was impressive, to sort of move their factories east of the Urals, you know, just bang lathes into permafrost and, 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 and start making T-34s. But the Russia of today is, uh, is, is not, does not replicate those things. The, you know, the Russia of today is, uh, you know, is a gangster state, but it also has a much younger population that have grown up 
with another view of the world and wanting different things, which is probably why Putin's calculated he can't mobilise that society in the way that Stalin could absolutely ruthlessly mobilise you know, the Soviet Union from, from, from 1941 onwards. So I think it's a, it, it, you, what you're seeing is a strategic culture which still thinks it can do ruthlessness and mass. And I think what Putin's finding out is when he's pulled the trigger on that, he can't. You know, the modern Russian Federation isn't capable of producing a Red Army that the Soviet Union could in 1941. Uh, and so you know, this is why I, and alongside many others, you know, have argued that we should really look at what we're seeing when, with Russia and not ourselves be seduced by this idea of the continuing strategic culture and that there's always the ghost of the Red Army will allow the Russians to just continue to send wave after wave of, uh, of, of infantry into the fight and eventually overwhelm. I think what we're seeing is Russia can't, hasn't got the size to do mass, but nor has it bothered and it doesn't have the national culture to do the sort of precision, uh, sophisticated military that you know, the West has developed since 1945, and so it's caught. Um, and the proof is it's stalled now in a country with a defence budget that, admittedly, of course, now you know, uh, there's a lot more money has been spent on the actual munitions. But Ukraine created a defence on a defence budget of £4 billion a year equivalent. Uh, and that seems to have absorbed by many calculations somewhere around about 80% of the fighting power of, the, of uh, the army of the Russian Federation. So I think it's just throughout some really interesting questions, not just for how we help Ukraine uh, in dealing with this terrible war and the, you know, the awful suffering that they're going through. But I think it poses some very inter interesting questions for NATO in the West as to how it positions itself afterwards. And, and maybe readdresses some of its previous considerations about what what Russia always has been and Russia always will be. And and I know I know you talk about uh, a number of of questions that you know NATO should be asking itself and obviously as as you've said as well Russia has um a, a, it's learning but you know in a survival of the fittest um manner it, it it's it's taking its lessons while taking losses. What lessons or, or what should NATO be trying to take away from this? What strategic doctrine should be changed? What should, what should NATO be watching for in this? Oh, well, I think there's, there, are, there are several things, aren't there? I mean, the first is that um, the centrality of the ownership of nuclear weapons when it comes to the central political control of, of a conflict and, and how that Sets, sets the boundaries. And that's still very much a pressing question, isn't it? You, you won't open a, any sort of lengthy article that discusses where next before the question of possible escalation, possible use of, use of nuclear weapons. So I think the, the first is, to, is the West needs to really regrow its thinking on this. Um, and the nations that NATO that own, there's only three you know, that, that, that own those nuclear weapons, have all developed slightly different cultures around that. Uh, and so I think there's, there's a lot more thinking to, uh, to be done there as we you know, reconsider what, what the nuclear battlefield looks like um, in the future. The second then is the whole idea of a tripwire force, forward defence, etc., etc., um, sounds all very plausible, and generals can talk about you know absorbing the initial blows, you know retreating while inflicting heavy losses. 
But if you're a country the size of Estonia and you are the, <laughs> the, the buffer zone, that doesn't look too appealing when you look at what Russia has done in the areas that it's occupied in Ukraine. And they have experience of this, which is why, you know, the very impressive Estonian president, Kai Kallas, has been very clear to the rest of Europe about that. So I think we're going to see different doctrines. And I think those doctrines are, going to, are much more valid now. Um, there seems to be a school of thought that suggests that you know, the Russian military will learn it will come back stronger and fitter. I'm not sure how it can, given the sanctions, given the fact that pretty much everyone has realised that any country called Russia that's still run by anything that looks like the Putin regime is a pariah state until it goes through some fundamental change in its you know, political apparatus. Uh, and I cannot see um, sanctions being easily lifted. And I think sanctions will be harder to break because of that. And so I don't see where Russia is going to, A, get the material to rebuild, but B, where is it going to get the change in strategic culture? Because it's essentially a you know, corrupt kleptocracy and those sorts of cultures aren't free, open, questioning, don't do lessons learned properly, don't ask themselves hard questions and give themselves hard answers. And, so, and you know, I know you've talked about the nuclear question, but does that weaker Russia make it more dangerous? Does, does a Russia with a lower conventional capability make them more tempted to use their nuclear capability or their other unconventional capabilities? Well, I've always argued yes, um, because you just have to read the Russian doctrine on it. And then those who are much better Kremlinologists than I am, um, or Russian historians, and chatting to one any the other night, will say, never forget that a weak, a weak Russia is always the most dangerous Russia. A Russia that feels weak is the one that will lash out. And that's why I say I think it, you know, you're still seeing these, you know, these questions of where's the escalation come from. I don't think the escalation is conventional. I think Russia's all in at the moment already. But, it, but there have been so, still some red lines. There's a red line around NATO getting involved directly. There would be a red line, I think, about regime change. There would be a red line about an, an invasion and loss of Russian territory. And therefore, there, that calls into question um, say this, the the. Diff the de facto, not de jure, status of Crimea, for example. Yeah, so uh, you kind of preempted what I was going to say then when you said the like loss of Russian territory. But do you think Russia would see Crimea in that? You know, would they, would they say losing Crimea is like a loss of Russian territory in the same vein as, I don't know, if they lost territory in, um, in the Belgr Belgrade or, or Kursk regions, for example? Uh, I think it's... I think it's reasonably well accepted um having said that there'll be thousands of people that listen to this podcast if there are indeed thousands of people who want to listen to this podcast um he, he might take a contrary view um that you know the boundaries existed on the exist on the 23rd of february are pretty much non-negotiable um yeah off, after that um you have the separatist parts of um the donbass and then you have that question of Crimea, which has always been, I mean, genuinely, despite all the other stuff you read about the history of Ukraine, Kievan Rus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, those who've been to Crimea and have been around Sevastopol and have seen the huge monument there to Soviet mariners and, uh, and what have you know the place that holds in the Russian imagination. I think Zelensky has even suggested that um, in the past, certainly, that 
you know, Crimea is, uh, is where the negotiations would centre, uh, but also being pretty clear you know, that we don't recognise um, the illegal Russian occupations from 2014 onwards. So I think what the, 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 the war aims here, and of course no one has really published war aims, and can even the West have war aims? Well, I would argue um, if you're providing that, that much weaponry, then there will always be some level of conditions. You only have to you know, go to the extremes and say, if we were to provide intercontinental ballistic missiles to Ukraine and they decided to launch them at Moscow, would we be complicit and would we want to say something about it? And of course, yeah, the answer is yes. Now, I'm not advocating that we control Zelensky. It's up to the Ukrainians to decide, you know, uh, what the, uh, within certain boundaries, what the, what the appropriate outcome for the war is. And I'm not, not one of these people who's saying, well, for the sake of everyone else, the Ukrainians should seek an accommodation. I think uh, they're absolutely right to fight off this Russian invasion. So what you get to is where do you get to the point where you defeat the Russian invasion, you clearly defeat the Russian military, you leave it really with no option. If it carries on, it will just be wasted in, in, in Ukraine. And you leave Zelensky able to negotiate from, from a position of real strength. Uh, and, and that, I think, is writing war aims around that and then resourcing to achieve it. And I think we are getting there, you know, the, the longer range HIMARS systems, uh, MLRI systems will allow the Ukrainians to really take, take the fight back to the Russians and make life extremely uncomfortable for their invasion force. And well, I think, the, um, oh, sorry, sorry, John, you know, carry on. Saying, I think that will give that, that, that there is, as long as we can continue to keep them armed and we, there are some real questions, sorry, a slight digression, but I'll come straight back. There are some real questions about the West's defence industrial capacity. But if we can continue to keep you know, Zelensky armed and in a way that is, allows him to run a sensible logistic operation, I think you know what I mean by that, but I could come back to that, then, yeah, there's every chance that they make the Donbass the sort of hell that the Russian forces realise they have to get out of. And at that point, he negotiates from a position of strength. And then the West can also decide around sanctions and other bits and pieces how much of a screw it keeps on Putin and his regime. These, to me, all seem like alignable war aims between Zelensky and the West. And as the Eastern European states, Estonia, as I already mentioned, to Kai Kallas, very, you know, very clear on this, um, you know, why you know, the West mustn't allow Russia to emerge in the sort of position where it continues to threaten those frontier states. And we're all then living in a dangerous world spending a fortune on, um, on, on a very forward defence for the reasons I've already outlined, when we didn't need to because we could have helped the Ukrainians really defeat Putin's capacity to do this again. And, and, so, and Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. You, you, I, I was going to say, I was just going to touch on a, on a couple of points um, regarding war aims and also uh, what you mentioned previously about, obviously, um, like potential regime change inside Russia. My question was going to be, um, so obviously, you know, Russia, they attempted to take uh, Kiev um, and had to retreat from the North Lear. They tried to take Kharkiv um, and failed. Um, obviously, they, they, you know, the area they having the most success is obviously in the Donbass, you know, the Luhansk region. Um, with the expected Ukrainian offensive in the south, in you know, an attempt to retake uh, Kherson, um, if Russia do lose the city and are pushed back across the river, um, at what point does kind of internal pressure for Putin start to kind of ramp up in when they have in, you know, very little military success and, you know, kind of 
um, defeat after defeat, both you know militarily and also on the kind of you know public relations front, like the propaganda front. Um, at what point do you know Putin's um, officers start looking to you know potentially uh, do something about that internally? In your opinion, of course. Oh, I mean, that's just, that would be, just be wild conjecture from me. That would be speculation. Oh, okay, that's, that's fine. I, I mean, really, but, my, but the point I make here, and I could just make two points, because you, the way you frame that, I think, you know, I have to come back slightly. Um, uh, the first thing, anybody who, who, who advances those sorts of theories is probably mirror imaging to a certain extent. You've only got to look at the polls, and you know, most Russians are behind Putin and what's he's doing. And, um, you know, so I'm not one of these people who's, coming up with some confident suggestion that there'll be some nice, clean little palace coup and someone we can deal with emerges. I'm really, I'm not saying that. And I also, when I really, really must come back is, because it's too easy to say regime change. And I think that, so for the reasons that I outlined earlier, is a very dangerous thing for the West or for NATO to be talking about because you know, Putin has plausibly in the right, mind and in certain parts of you know, those third parties, especially in the global south, has tried to paint NATO as an aggressor. So if any Western politicians start talking casually about regime change, well, you are starting to get up that ladder of you know, potential nuclear escalation. So I think any rhetoric around that is, is unwise. Uh, and I think we should stick to the rhetoric of we need to help you, Ukraine with its inherent right of self-defense, Article 51, with all measures necessary to defend and reclaim its territory uh, and see the Russian uh, invasion defeated. I think it's legitimate to talk about and maintaining sanctions because Russia mustn't now, now Russia's intent has been made clear, it mustn't be allowed to be able to threaten any other NATO members or and preferably, you know, not, not just NATO, but NATO can't really speak, speak for others. And that's, that's perfectly legitimate too. But to go beyond that is, I think, a little reckless. And once you just sit, sit back and say, you know, it is up to the Russian polity, which is very different to our own, um, to decide um, what its government is going to be. Um, and I think that's a, that's a, a, a sensible and legitimate position to defend. And it doesn't get you starting to scamper towards some of those red lines, which could lead to very dangerous places indeed. Of course. Um, so uh, to bring it back a bit, obviously, from uh, extremist regime change. Um, but do you think there will be kind of mounting pressure for, to make, possibly bring the war to a conclusion, like a quicker conclusion? Um, London would be so you know obviously would support for the war should I say start to kind of decrease um, when you know so much time goes on without any kind of concrete gains and obviously of course you know potential losses in the south um, you know would, would the Russian yeah. public opinion start shifting away from support for the war at that point um as I say, I'm going to resist the temptation to mirror image the way Western societies, you know, respond to their governments. I think the one thing you can say, and one thing that has traditionally put pressure on uh, uh, Russian slash Soviet um, governments um, in the past, is the pressure of the dead conscript's mother, and that's been well written about. I'm not saying anything new or clever there. Um, so I think you can legitimately start to ask, at what point does that become a political pressure? 
And then you look at some of the recent stats as you know, where are the casualties being taken, and already it's starting to circulate that you know, it, there aren't many sons of um, wealthy Muscovites on the front line, but there are a lot of people from the impoverished parts of the periphery of Russia, you know, the, the you know, ethnically more diverse parts of the, of the Russian demography who are taking disproportionate levels of casualties. So how all that plays, I don't know, and don't want to speculate too much. I think the other question, though, which I think where, where you were going was, you know, the, the, does the Western coalition hold? And um, I think recent evidence has made me slightly more optimistic. Um, you know, there's evidence that the, you know, the German public is staying solid. There's also evidence that the US, even, you know, there's always a, um, a legitimate um, sort of isolationist wing, especially as, let's say, it wasn't just Donald Trump, it's pretty much every American president has pointed out how much America spends on defence vice the average European nation state. So there's always a tendency to say, look after, look after your own problems. But once again, the public seem to be holding firm. And given that, you know, the energy question will come back increasingly to haunt us, and uh, they, <laughs> Europe's going through its own heat wave at the moment, autumn and winter will be, will be on us soon. But you never know. I think people are genuinely now disgusted by the war crimes. I think they have seen. You cannot now ignore what's going on in Russia. You know, what's going on in Russia is what many people didn't know about until Anthony Beaver wrote his, you know, wrote his Berlin and choreographed in graphic detail, you know, the mass rapes of the Red Army as it surged from 43 onwards to May 45. And I think what people are seeing now is, well, that still seems to be there. So I, I just sense that, you know, the sim simple view that the West will get bored, Western um, electorates have low attention spans, and as soon as the gas bills go up, what, what, the, what you might get is, is the gas bills going up will force people to think, but they will now want something much more to be done. Because it will, it will, it's not just someone else's question at that point, but you have to decide where you are on that fence. Each one of us has to therefore make that moral calculation. Do we just want this problem to go away so that that element of the cost of living crisis is resolved? Or do we realise that we are living through one of these in one of these wars that only comes along once every several decades in Europe? And we're quite lucky that we're not directly involved in this at the moment. But how we react to it will set the conditions that we all have to live with in the future. And it will define to autocrats around the world what you can and can't get away with. And I, would I definitely like... think there is an interesting question in there as both sides face those increasing pressures. I know in the West right now, the, the main pressures that the average civilian is facing, you know, are increased energy prices, generally those those increased gas prices um and and you know by extension everything that comes with that um and russia at the moment most of what the average civilian is facing on the um on the sanctions side of things is you know closed western businesses you know we're going to rebrand um mcdonald's and turn that into a russian brand it's it's been turned into this this patriotic element um and you're mentioning as both sides sort of, you know, maybe into this winter start to feel more consequences from the war. Will that increase, you know, that general extremism um, uh, seen on on both the Russian and, and the Western side of the equation? Will that make views harder? Yeah, in, 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 in the short term, it certainly will. 
um, it will be very interesting to see where you know, the, the Russian demography, the Russian policy goes with this. And as I say, I don't claim any insider knowledge on it. And I you know, would point out to anybody who assumes there'll be a great wake-up moment that, in fact, at the start of this war, support for Putin went up. But as I said before, you know, Afghanistan and all, that you know, eventually the costs do drip back to, to the people of Russia. What happens then? I don't know. Um, you do see different attitudes in Europe. Um, it is interesting if you look at the polls. The, the, um, yeah, the, the Italians would see this differently to the Estonians. And so I think um, hold, holding that Western coalition together is something that the, uh, yeah, and, and I'm not saying they're not doing it, is something that the political class will have to really think through and really make sure that having worked out what it wants to do, it's really aligned in it and absolutely keeps hammering home the message. Have we really, though, lifted ourselves into a wartime way of thinking in the West, given everything that's at stake that we were just talking about, you know, what, what, what strategic conditions, what lessons will be learned around the world if Putin gets away with it, vice he doesn't, and sanctions are, main, are, are maintained. To that end, to me, one of the core elements here seems to be energy security. And, you know, I think the, the, the Germans in some ways are bending over backwards at the moment to build terminals for gas and what have you. Yet still the question of nuclear power you know, and whether they can reverse that still seems to be mired in the, in, in, in the politics of old. Um, we know where we all think we're headed with net zero. We know we were going to do an energy transition. You know, to me, one of the things that makes us safer now is if Europe comes together and, and, and adopts as a sort of Manhattan project an accelerated energy transition. You know, it goes from the model we were used to, quite complacent, um, becoming quite, de well, very dependent, but changes across countries on um, Russian hydrocarbons. And you set out to positively accelerate that as your, as, as, as your contribution. You know, at that point, then Russia is losing strategically even more quickly, and you are addressing two concerns. Um, of the West, you know, energy security in both senses, security of energy supply, and also moving towards net zero. So it would strike me that you know, the West really wanted to do two things at the moment that would help. It would accelerate its, you know, and as a pan-EU approach to energy transition, and as, a, as I say, a huge Manhattan project. And the second would be to really think through these munitions, because Politicians, to an extent, are still grandstanding a bit about the weapons they're giving Ukraine. But as several of us cautioned right at the start, you know, don't give onesies and twosies, I think it was a phrase I used before, onesies and twosies of this and that to the Ukrainians, because having 30 different types of every sort of weapon is just a logistic and maintenance nightmare. You're actually just going to completely kludge them up in trying to look after all this stuff. Um, and I think Jack Watling at Rusi and others have actually gone gone into Ukraine, come back, and now written a very good report that points out that this is true. You know, they're pretty much every type of 155, and it's a good idea to move to 155 millimeter ammunition, but pretty much every type of uh, 155 artillery system that the West has given Ukraine actually requires its own logistic trail and its own particular shell type, and then it's got its own, of course, it would have its own maintenance requirements. 
So suddenly, you know, if you if you run out of one thing or another, you've got to remove this whole logistic train out and put another one in. So it's uh, you know it's massively cumbersome and it's a real drain on the energy and the capacity of the Ukrainians. So working out how you are going to genuinely be the arsenal of democracy and allow Ukraine under Article Fifty One to exercise its legitimate right of self-defence, I still think there's a lot more we could be doing. And think where we would be now if we'd made those decisions back in mid-March when it was pretty clear where the campaign was going. Yeah, I, I know people were saying it'll take months to train, you know, Ukrainian pilots to fly on Western jets. And, you know, they they were saying that back in March and, you know, how they, they won't be available for the fight until, you know, July, August, you know, maybe sometime in, in the fall. And, you know, now we look at that question and, you know, no matter if, you know, we've seen now that, you know, the U.S. will be training Ukrainian pilots. But if that decision was made earlier, um, you know, we, we could have seen more concrete results sooner. Yes. And as several people said at the time, like Greg Bagwell, um, retired Air Marshal Greg Bagwell, who I used to work very closely with Greg, actually said, look, this goes on for months. Don't don't come back in four months and then say, oh, well, it'd take a long time to train them. Because if you started now, at the point you just made. But some people were saying that back in March. And I know it got conflated with the no-fly zone debate at the time. It, but nevertheless, um, on the precautionary principle, you could still take some people out and train them. And then they're ready to go if you subsequently decide to do it. If the whole thing was over before then, well, great. But you haven't lost much. So I think if there was a little bit more risk taken on this precautionary principle, because quite a few people have been saying these things, but they, you know, they get dismissed as outlier voices. Uh, you know, I think the outlier voices have been proved more correct here. Well, as 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 we've seen before, that that tends to to be a cursed um, position that this podcast has taken. Um, we've 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 occasionally been that outlier voice, and it's it's. Again, having you know a, a a more not extreme per se, but but a more forceful position on something can and get you ignored. I I know I've seen people make joke ideas like you know uh, uh, having Ukrainian F-16s operate out of Uzerod and truck them in between uh, in and out to you know Slovakia between every sortie for maintenance. Um, and and you know, but I I do think that those bigger, more more grandiose ideas have to be you know presented and actually have to have a tape have to have a seat at the table, um because that's where we get the interesting ideas and that's you know where we get you know concepts like the brimstone truck carrier and and where we get you know um uh, other other ideas like sending Ukraine Denmark's old you know harpoon coastal defense system, um. Having those bigger ideas is always important. Yeah, and we don't tend to learn. Here's an next director general defence academy talking here. We don't tend to learn some of the lessons of the more interesting campaigns in the past, because um, look at uh, Slim's Fourteenth Army in Burma, you know, that, that that got by with second, third, and sometimes fourth tier kit that was just not considered good enough for the European campaign. And then used with real imagination and with real local ingenuity and ends up doing things you know, in Kahima and Imphal that just hadn't been tried anywhere else because you know, Necessitas made to invent them. You know, whole divisions moved overnight uh, in the Arakan. And I think what you're seeing here is you know, Ukrainians are prepared to think about these things. You know, they're prepared to um, mix civilian and military tech 
you've seen what's gone on with um, Musk has made Starlink terminals available. Well, people previously said, well, they'll be vulnerabilities to space and the SIV stuff won't be up to it. But you can download huge amounts of really quite useful geospatial intelligence now that only a few years back would have been, you know, top secret five eyes only with the, the resolutions now available. And from a, you know, many constellations of satellites where previously it was you know, one or two really sophisticated reconnaissance satellites, principally only really owned by the US. So it's being prepared to be innovative and embrace these these new ways of thinking. And I, I suppose what I worry about is we are not showing enough um, imagination. It's easy to decry things as grand projet, and by and large, that's right. You know, if you if you put all your eggs in one huge grand projet basket and it doesn't work, but a lot of things you you, know, you mentioned there, and I've just added a few too, with brimstone or harpoon. This is just repurposing extant equipment and doing it without automatically thinking. You need a five-year program and two hundred million, and you know it's fifty million to it for the manufacturer to open the first envelope. Um, you guys get back to the Second World War. I mean, the US experience of the Second World War, you know, Brits tend to think of it as, you know, 39 to 45 and six years. Of course, the American experience is three and a half years. And look at the expansion in three and a half years. When I left the MOD, I remember one of our ISR you know, reconnaissance aircraft needed a slightly bigger dynamo attached, you know, alternator attached to its engine because it was drawing more current than expected. And that was going to take three and a half years, apparently. You know, we've, we've got used to these overcautious timescales. And I think one of the things that, that, that does come out, and we all have to think about in the West, is revisiting the principles of war for wartime and being able to innovate and take more risk and blend and merge all sorts of national capacities and do it really quickly. And yeah. I think we've got used to the, you know, the peacetime military-industrial contracts, the churns, the big meetings, the committees, the silk charts of 10-year spending plans and all of that. And I think that has mentally silted up our military brains a little bit. And I, I, I think we say, also oh, should sorry. be taking. Oh, I think we also should be taking those steps in peacetime as well. You know, being more adventurous, more daring in our plans, and and you know, a bit more free thinking, um, in what we're preparing to do. And 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 obviously, as we've seen with with the Russians, not get too attached to doctrine, um because that can obviously cause a, a number of issues when, you know, your doctrine actually faced the tests of battle. Well, as I used to own the UK's doctrine center in that joint force development job, um, you know, obviously I have some thoughts on that. Um, doctrine doesn't mean you have to be doctrinaire. And doctrine's a starting point for thinking. It's something you teach. I would like, as we move to more realistic synthetic environments, there's, all sorts of ways now. You know, training doesn't just have to be on the couple of square miles of Salisbury Plain running through basic drills, you know, or air forces in restricted airspaces over the North Sea, et cetera, et cetera. The synthetic environment will allow us to do much more realistic mission rehearsal and try imaginative ways. And so your doctrine can always be tested a lot more. Doctrine is just a, a starting point. Uh, if you become a doctrinaire military, and I think you are seeing that with the Russian Federation's army at the moment, and it becomes something that you must do you know these are though you like that they are generic orders and instructions then you've already lost the fight and so your your, your doctrine you know, continues to be updated before i left the last job we wrote the integrated operating concept we wrote i thought rather imaginative future operating concept saying imagining where you'd be in 2040 and on lots of things that would you would be able to do then 
And I would argue that what you're seeing in Ukraine is the foothills of that now, and with two armies that went into it pretty underdeveloped, and yet you're already seeing the, you know, the, the assumed characteristics of information age warfare playing out. So I, I, I agree with you that I, I think we ought to be a, a little bit more uh, imaginative in peacetime, but I think there are ways and means coming along that would allow us to reorient our military to achieve that. Yeah, I, mean, I wanted to. Oh, sorry, I was going to say as well. This to you, aren't I? Yeah, you are. I, I, we need we need a way to signal who's going to say who's going to ask a question next. Um, I was going to say I wanted to touch on what you mentioned uh, that Ukraine were using obviously um, a mix of like civilian and and military equipment, and I think um, like technically, I'm sure you'll agree with me that one of the pieces that's having like such like a quite a large impact is um, is kind of consumer grade hobby drones. Of being, you know, like retrofitted to drop um, anti-personnel grenades and like anti-tank grenades on trench lines and also on armored vehicles and having like absolutely devastating effects in some instances. Um, and it's one of the things again. I see that Russia haven't really been able to adapt to um, counter in any way. Uh, you know, obviously they became popular in Iraq and Syria, like largely used by ISIS, I think, especially during the battle for um, for Mosul. Uh, that you know, ISIS largely used these kind of drones to drop um, grenades. I think I seen see the video that they dropped a uh, dropped a grenade through like the open hatch of a um, an Iraqi Abrams tank, which was you know just an incredible, incredible shot. Um, and kind of lost my play. Kind of lost what the question I was going to ask. Um, well, you started with repurposing. So, is it to suggest that we are seeing a sort of fundamental shift? Yeah, no, exactly. And I was going to say, like, you know, in in like, uh, you know, Britain's case, for example, um, you know, like how ready or how prepared or you know what kind of, um, you know, equipment the UK has to kind of counter like a, you know a similar threat if they were ever involved in you know a kind of conventional war against an enemy using these kind of conventional drones. Obviously, we've seen Ukraine have been equipped with, I think, from some of the Baltic states, they were given some kind of uh, anti-drone. Um, with rifles is probably the easiest way to describe them, um, like electronic warfare systems, like kind of handheld electronic warfare systems. Um, and it says it's quite interesting that Russia don't seem to have ever don't have the tech to kind of counter this at the moment, or at least don't have a tech in in the same kind of numbers. Um, because you know this kind of daily daily videos of you know like Ukrainian drones just kind yeah. of dropping these kind of you know micro munitions, which were kind of three D printed. Um, kind of fins on them. Mm. Yeah, and I was just wondering, like, you know, how much of a threat do you think the, um, those kind of, you know, hobby drones would pose to a, you know, for example, a, a NATO military, you know, no, no specific one in general, but just you know, in general, really. Well, I think yes, it's a. I mean, it's a very good question, and I think you just you just have to extrapolate a bit and not get not get tied down with, with the specifics, because I do not know. You know. I did ask the question of those who've been to Ukraine. They, they do say, actually, it's, it, this is being done at more scale than you realise. Mm. Because I, I, like others, I had seen the, you know, the videos of a commercial drone dropping a bin-stabilised grenade and it going through the hatch of a Russian um, infantry fighting vehicle in Ukraine. Um, I think there's one going around this weekend of a, of, of a drone hovering in front of someone who's rearming it in, in flight, as it were, and off it goes yeah. again. 
but then you look at that that's really quite a significant drone that's not that's not a hobby drone unless you're one of these um very well off filming companies because this is a big you know commercial drone and that's my point if you extrapolate then there are companies who are producing and can produce really good drones let's just yeah, let's be simple drones that are more than these hobby ones but a lot less than the sort of pseudo aeroplanes once again back to the idea of grand projet and overcomplicating everything so most of the systems the uk has operated have tended to be big systems and therefore they've taken a long time to procure and you, know, you divide the number of drones we'll get by the cost which is can be in most cases is into the measured in billions plus and actually you work it out these what are plastic essentially model big model airplanes are costing what i think we paid for things like the tornado when we bought them in the 70s and 80s near tens of millions of pounds that's what we've got to break because i do know there are, com there are companies in the uk I, I won't name necessarily but they are producing really capable systems we look at what the, what what the system will do and these things are launchable from the back of a pickup truck they're very low signature um and the sums there are not in the millions and billions they're in the hundreds of thousands are you talking orders of magnitude different and this is what we've got to get we've got to start thinking of these things as e-class stores not as programs of platforms that have to be administered and regulated and run as if you're buying a manned aircraft it's just that the bloke sits on the ground that's a non-gendered bloke by the way <laughs> so, the, um, the american dude yeah indeed this is a yes indeed i don't want to get a <laughs> there but um no, my point, but my point, I think, is that it's back to that repurposing, doing things with imagination. Things are moving so quickly now that if you set up a project, you know, international project, to repurpose a reasonably well-found drone, and you put Brit stuff on it, and then it takes years to clear into service. By the time it gets in, there are companies now with microelectronics and advances and other bits who are knocking up the same capacity for something that's not a million miles different from those commercial drones, but has military level capacities. And it's, it's reorientating the sweet spot where those, where those graphs cross. Because I think you can achieve military level outputs for not much more than pretty simple civilian led prices. And, and, and even you know, look at the, you know, the more famous one, and you know, me most, probably you know, the most famous of these systems at the moment, given what happened in um, Nagorno-Karabakh as well, you know, are some of the systems that the Turks are producing. So if you want to, to take this back to commercial off the shelf, well, look what you can buy with a Bayraktar, Vice, what's in programs, you know, either like Watchkeeper or Reaper, I know Reaper's subtly different given, you know, it has a sort of global, more global reach, or Global Hawk, which is you know, different again. But somewhere on you know, those battlefield systems, we've got to realise that we need to be buying them much more like ammunition and treating them like that, rather than imagining we're buying you know, complicated manned platforms with all the inherent safety and you know, aer aer aerospace premium tags that normally append to those types of programme. And that, that would be the big shift. And then accept that they might be obsolescent tomorrow, but you, know, you can then additive manufacturers and more uh, and the, as i say these are things that are much more considered in the way that we currently consider ammunition it's usable you use it up um it's not something you necessarily have to husband and the sort of figures i've spoken about you know if you're to divide 
cost of some of these um, very capable drones into something like the Watchkeeper program, you can afford to do that because you would now be buying thousands of these things, not tens. And that does alter the battlefield. And the final point on this is you talked about sort of counter drone technologies. We did get involved in that countering ISIS's drones. They were actually very imaginative. They actually used them to guide suicide vehicle borne IEDs, um, you know, which so each you know, monster truck armor plated with a big bomb in it actually had a drone or two flying ahead of it to work out how it could navigate around cities. I mean, very, quite a sophisticated concept of ops built very cheaply. I'm not going to go into too many details, but it did get us into electronic warfare. And so the way you take these systems down is not to defend on the goal line with some sort of electronic rifle shooting them out of the sky. You know, you reinvest in old school electronic warfare and you fight the threat across its depth. Where are the supply chains coming from? Who's making these things? As I say, you start to interdict it as ammunition, the same way that the Ukrainians are interdicting the ammunition that's going into the Donbass um, at the moment. So you fight the threat across its depth by attacking all the, you know, the subcomponent parts that go to make it up, um, as we did with countering IEDs, you know, in Iraq and uh, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's what that's what I'd say there. You know, don't think of counter ID as I say as the electronic rifle defending at two hundred yards. Think of it as how you dismantle the threat, the the capacity across the depth that the opposition has to build to produce these things in the first place. Yeah, and I know you were talking about, you know, that video of a drone, you know, with the Ukrainian soldier loading it up with a munition and, and sending it to fly off. Um, I actually, I know what that video was. I went out, I, I priced out what that drone would cost and, you know, its capabilities. Um, found a found a British retailer or, or a British um, uh, uh, approved retailer for it. And it, it's about 11,000 um, pounds. It has a 55 minute flight time, about a 15 kilometer range. Um, you know, it can carry multispectral imaging, thermal imaging, you know, LIDAR imaging for, you know, more advanced stuff. And as we've seen, it can also carry an 82 millimeter mortar shell. Um, and so I, I definitely think there is, as you said, this this space where commercial offerings have become very advanced and, and incredibly capable. And that's allowing, you know, some uh, uh, not less advanced per se, but but militaries with a lower budget to incorporate these these high level, you know, ISR slash, you know, weapons delivery platforms. Yes, and and I think, you know, we've seen this where um state backed terrorist organizations can use these things. That's the other area we've got to think about it. You know, where you get into that middle ground where it's not not quite full on military grade stuff, but it's a, a bit more than commercial. I mean you look at the you know attack on Aramco and other bits and pieces from a year or so ago, a couple of years ago now. And I think that is something we do, we, that, that, that yes, we, we, do have to, uh, we do have to worry about. Absolutely. And I, I think we should probably finish this up with, you know, a, a more exciting question. But uh, I, you flew against, you know, one of the, uh, or one of the only few times NATO's actually flown against a real integrated air defense system. Um, how's NATO positioned today to handle that? How is NATO positioned today? to fight an actual real air defense opponent? Um, yeah, it's a very good question because actually the, it arose last time properly uh, in Syria around about, the t about 2013, 2014, isn't it? It was around about the time the UK voted in the House of Commons on not getting involved in Syria. 
Now, one of the military arguments the Americans are pushing forward was it will be a major act of war to take down the Syrian air integrated air defense system. You know, flatten the whole thing, Russians are involved. Uh, I did argue at the time that um, I thought maybe that was a little pessimistic. I thought we were taking counsel of our fears. Um, I'm they operate in a different way, but it did seem that the Israeli Air Force could, at the time and place of its choosing, always strike in Syria. Um, the Russians weren't avowed. Um, there are ways you could have warned them to not be there. Um, and I did not think that that supposedly fourth best integrated air defence system in the world would really stand up when properly stressed. Now, I think what Ukraine has shown is that you know, the, the Russian threat was never quite where we thought it was. And I wonder you know, whether the one in, in Syria would have been would have operated in practice exactly as the book says, because of course the book assumes everything works perfectly, is operated by committed individuals, it operates to 100% of its technical spec, it doesn't look at model the system as it actually exists in all its imperfections, warts and all, in, in the real world. So I, on a technical level, I think uh, you know, NATO is pretty well prepared. We do not know, and it's it's becoming a NATO question. Look at Jens Stoltenberg remarks at the Madrid summit. And we know the Chinese, with many more resources to put behind it, um, uh, have been thinking about blunting the Western way in war. Uh, though they are unproven, uh, they are untested. You know, they they've never had to orchestrate this sort of complicated military activity themselves, and that is a factor. But you know, we we we, we need to take that seriously. But I think what you could say is remove the nuclear question and now treat Russia's invasion of Ukraine as we treated Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And I'm pretty sure it would not take NATO the 46 days that we took. Um, degrade the Russian invasion in the Donbass. Uh, because the only thing, as I said before, the one thing we have shown is that Russians don't seem capable of stitching all their component parts together, even in quite simple um, all arms or combined arms operations within one environment in one service, let alone across in the joint in you know in the joint uh, in in the joint environment. So to answer your question, uh, I think technically NATO's fine. Where I think NATO is weak is you've got to say you war game this. At what point does NATO run out of munitions? That that definitely and the, yeah. And 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 the because you know you can have you can have the sexiest sniper rifle in the world but if you can't afford any bullets for its magazine it's not much use um you know simplifying to make a point there but uh, and as we saw in libya as i know from running operations against isil you know which were sniping every day with brimstones and paveway fours you know and i know that several air forces in the world were all trumping after the same paveway four factory so you've got to look, I think someone's pointed out that the entire US production of 155 mil, uh, millimetre ammunition, its standing production at the moment, would last about two weeks in Ukraine. So those are the questions I keep, you know, I keep coming back to. Has NATO got to the point of being comforted by its technical capacities and its professionalism and its ability to integrate all arms across the joint battle space? But does it actually, behind that, if it gets involved in a protracted campaign, have the real war-winning capacities in production and logistics. And we mustn't forget those run-of-the-mill but essential items as we get necessarily 
concerned with the possibilities of linking everything together with digital backbones, and which I champion, uh, and the better use of data and the better use of some of these sensor technologies to really allow us to understand the battle space in a way we've never had before. Once you've understood it, you've still got to employ violence, and violence, I'm afraid, against a significant adversary. still requires you to have factories that churn stuff out and a logistics organisation that pumps it to the front. And I think those are the areas where where NATO might find itself more tested if those figures about even American production are true. That That is certainly interesting. And, and what capabilities that, that NATO might actually have to fight a more attracted conflict, um, whether that be, you know, as we saw with ISIS or, you know, with a more peer opponent. Um, and I, I, I definitely agree that there are questions about those capabilities to you know sustain production or or even ramp up production in, in the needed amount of time or whether there's you know enough buffer capacity to deal with that um that that is definitely a huge question i think and just an associated one for defense budgets and you know maybe this is a sort of wrap-up point for it all um in my last job, it became clear to me that we had a lot to learn from some of the smaller European, and we the Brits had a lot to learn from some of the smaller um, European nations that joined the Joint Expeditionary Force. And of course, we had, before they um, applied to join NATO, we had Finland and Sweden in the group. And I looked at their defence plans, I thought, actually, these are really well thought through. I also thought, but if our then view of the Russian mass is is thrown at them. Are they actually being a hedgehog? Are they just going to make the invasion painful? But ultimately, you know, they, it, 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 it will fold. Well, I think what we've seen now is the you know, defence plans of places like Finland and Sweden are, what are they're very robust indeed. Um, and why do I say that? Because all of those elements that we've just spoken about were considered. You know, the Finns on seven billion a year have the second largest after Russia artillery fleet or whatever phrase you use uh, in in Europe. You know, they don't throw this stuff away. They keep it. They keep it available. They accept that not everything could be cutting edge, but use the cutting edge where you need it. And you you know your mass is going to be a level a level below, but you don't throw things away and just keep the exquisite. And so you know they can put two hundred and eighty five thousand, I think, uh, troops into the field immediately. They the vast majority, vast majority of reservists, 21,000 full-time military in Finland. And with a little more time, you've got just shy of a million, million people. It's all resourced and planned. And here's my point, it's hooked in across society. So those people involving, uh, involved in industries or capacities that are critical to your national infrastructure or national warfighting in infrastructure, regularly take part in these exercises because these countries realize you have to mobilize the whole of the nation state. And that's something else that the West with its constant, you know, the older Western powers, the concentration on um, very professional, non-conscript militaries, those militaries can become very polished, but really quite small and a little bit removed from society. And so one thing I think Ukraine ought to bring home, that's where I come back to politicians making the case that this is a confrontation in which we are very much interested in and are very much involved, is it might get that broader policy to think through what its position is in helping in the national defence and not just revel in the routine demonstrations of very professional, very capable, but actually quite small militaries 
involved in either the smaller scale operations or the exercises or you know, in the weekend of Riyadh, the sort of displays of military skill and daring. I think we do have to go back a little bit to thinking through how do you mobilize the nation state in its own defense? And that's not a question that we have really grappled with properly since 45, even though we did play at it through the Cold War. And we certainly really haven't thought about it since, you know, since 89. So we're getting on for, what's that, 33 years. That's several generations. And so I think those are some of the really fundamental military political questions that come out come out of Ukraine. No, and and that that is certainly a, a lot to to take in and and to process um, a, about whether or not even at a societal level, if we are are capable of doing something like that today, um, of of handling that that World War Two or or you know wartime production or, or wartime preparation or, or, or sort of those those mindsets that are required in order to do that that those sacrifices that need to be made by the average civilian in order to allow that type of production or, or preparation um and there, there are questions of whether or not we can handle that but i'll i'll leave that up to the political scientists and social and social scientists who are, who are well, certainly better than us well, here's a you know, final thought on that. Uh, I'm terribly sorry, I can't remember whether it was in Finland or, or Sweden, it may be in both. But if you have been one of those captains of industry and um, you've been involved in one of these major national exercises, then you get a little boutonniere to wear in your lapel and they're all worn with pride, you know, regardless of which part of society you come from. This is you doing your bit and you, know, you are co-opted into the national defence. You wear that with pride. You demonstrate you know, what you've done. Back in UK and in other countries around the West at the moment, you've actually got defence manufacturers fighting against you know, ESG type business where they're finding it difficult to even get bank loans because ESG turns around and says we don't want to be putting money into nasty industries like tobacco and defence. And I think we need to see uh, once again that our defence industries are vital parts of the national defence and not scurry away from them muttering things about arms dealers and so i think a more grown-up conversation in in that area um i think would uh, would be in everybody's benefit but yeah it's 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 certainly one that that there must be a larger discussion on yeah and i think even when he was um chairman uh, of uh, the joint chiefs committee i think it was um general dunford actually went down to the bay area did he not a couple of years back to sort of discuss with the tech industries point out that and as militaries became more digital then the capacities of the tech area were vital and yet you know he was picking up from certain companies you know such as google and others in market you know do no evil was i think google's to begin with wasn't it who said we don't want to be involved with the military well great virtue signaling especially when a lot of those companies were you know looking at the possibilities of the markets in china for example so you know, it's, we've, what that tells me is we have become a little bit divorced from reality. Um, and, and, you know, it's too easy to, do, to take up some of these postures. Uh, and I would welcome a rebalancing of that conversation. Certainly. And I, I think on that note, uh, not, to, not to quote Jeremy Clarkson on that disappointing note, um, 
we we probably should wrap up. Um, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. Um, I I think there's a lot of quotes that we can pull from this. Probably not not out of context, but um, it, it's definitely <laughs> certainly been enlightening to see your view on the situation. Oh well, thank you very much. Um, yes, I've been very wide ranging, hasn't it? So, uh, but a lot of um, thank you for the questions. I mean, there's a lot of really important really important stuff in there that tends to get forgotten behind the compelling immediacy of what's going on on the battlefield. But I think if you look at this problem across its political military depth, I think there's a lot of things that we need to bring out. I think you've brought them out today, so thank you. Yeah, I, everyone likes the pictures of tanks blowing up. Everyone doesn't like, you know, seeing the supply chain behind that. <laughs> All right, and on, on that note, thank you everyone for listening to the OSINT Bunker podcast. We will see you back in two weeks. 